Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Our next guest is the VP of Audio Editorial at Jackbox Games, where he has worked since 1995. Starting out as a writer there, he meandered into editing, directing, sound effecting, and finally music composition. I'm super excited to welcome him to the show. And the composer is... Andy Poland. Hey, Matthew. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. So good to see you. You too. Good to see anybody at this point. <laughs> you know. For sure. Uh, I'm so glad that you sent the, uh, the Jackbox uh, soundtrack, which I didn't realize is available to listen to. I was definitely playing a lot of uh, Quiplash 3, the music from that. Oh, week. yeah. Yeah. I found out that there's a um, voc- very vocal mi- um, minority of people who don't like circus music. I get a few, uh, a few uh, tweets every now and then. It's like, what's with the circus music in Quiplash 3? But, you know, you can't please everybody. For sure. Um, so, yeah, out of curiosity, what was, like, one of your first, like, musical memories? Like, was there a band that you loved listening to? Or were you forced into playing an instrument as a kid or anything like uh, that? Both those things are true. Um, my first memory, I do remember, and I don't remember the timing of this, but I was enrolled in this... Carl Orff music program when I was in preschool. And it was, I don't remember much about it, but I looked it up recently and it's kind of like an early introduction to music. And they had, I remember they had like marimbas and xylophones and they had a crazy drum set that had uh, mohair on it or something. And I think you're just kind of exploring sounds. And uh, so that's like my earliest memory. I started playing piano around five, I think, and reluctantly played for about five years. Didn't really practice much, but uh, I got some good ear training in. And I think middle school is where it all kind of kind of blew up. I met a, a f- my good friend who we formed a band in middle school and just kind of jammed in my basement for years. And uh, so that's when I really kind of got serious about playing. But music was always around. You know, my mom plays piano. My grandma played piano and taught lessons. And, you know, everyone, my sister plays piano and my brother played trombone. So there was a lot of music in my house growing up. For sure. So you played piano in the band? No, I played drums. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm, I'm a drummer kind of uh, by trade. What was your first band called? Oh, God. We had a lot of names. The names would change weekly and we'd always make a new logo <laughs> for, for each one. But it was... Uh, I don't remember the first name. One of them was Battle Scar. Ooh. Uh, the, the one that stuck around for was uh, Freelance. That was our big mm. kind of high school band. Um, <laughs> but it's like started, we started out very metal 
we would do like just the two of us, like guitar and drums doing Rush 2112 in my basement when we were in seventh grade or something. It was awful. But yeah, freelance kind of spanned all those uh, middle school and high school years. We kind of went from metal to more like, you know, R.E.M., Smiths, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. It must be exciting to be a, a metal drummer in your, your teens. Yeah, yeah. And metal was a, a little different back then. That was, it was a little more forgiving. I didn't have to be as, uh, you know, talented. I could just kind of slosh through it. Uh, but we had a good time. I, I had a, a, a double bass drum set at one point, you know, had like a million toms that I never used. So it was ridiculous, as you'd imagine. Yeah. The full, just uh, you turn around, Neil Peart style That's uh, right. drum kit. And that's where the similarities ended. <laughs> so did you uh, have any interest in like at that point, you know, like touring the world in the band or did you? Um, I think not necessarily in high school, but um, in college, uh, I went to a small school and I remember I was, when I got there, I was the only drummer on campus. So I got to play in a bunch of different bands. Um, there was a, p- a couple punk bands and a like an R&B band with a horn section, and that was a lot of fun. So I remember having a lot of fun with it and thinking I wanted it to be part of my life, but I was never really thinking long term with it. You know, I was a psych major. I didn't. I took like one music class in college. There wasn't a huge music program there at that time. But post college, when I had to get a real job and realized I wasn't going to get anything that was interesting, that's when that same guitarist who I was playing with in middle school, he and I decided to move to Los Angeles and uh, start a band. So that's when we kind of decided that's what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was living in LA like after that? Cause uh, it was pretty miserable. Um, I mean, it was fun. We were doing what we wanted to do and there were uh, four of us living in a one bedroom apartment with, bunk beds and we all had day jobs and we were, we got there actually right in the middle of the like hair band, late eighties hair band era. So we were this one band who played like REM and Smiths and that kind of stuff. And everybody else was like, wanted to be guns and roses. So, um, we didn't necessarily fit, but, uh, we carved our own little niche there and, um, it, you know, it was fun at times, uh, we played a lot around town and we would go on tours to where we would rent a van and just drive around the country and play to like three or four people in Flagstaff, Arizona. But after a while, you know, we started doing, actually, to go back to that, it was, it was great when we first got there because a friend of ours, Rob Jacobs, was an engineer and he was working mm-hmm. at A&M Records. And so like our when we first moved out there, we got to record our first demo tape at A&M, which was pretty amazing. Wow. Um, and then we kind of had things like that throughout our tenure there where um, our singer worked at the record plant kind of as a, a gopher at the beginning. So we would get to go into the record plant after hours and record there. And there were a couple of our gigs that were recorded with the, um, the record plant mobile truck. And um, there was one point we were practicing at the Paramount lot, like an old scoring stage. So we got these amazing opportunities. Um, and we eventually signed a publishing deal with Warner Chapel, which 
gave us a little bit of money and allowed us to quit our jobs. But we never got that elusive record deal. Uh, hmm. So, you know, it was, it was fun. We got it kind of out of our system, but it didn't really go anywhere. What would be the, uh, I guess, like the goal of a publishing deal from something like that at the time? Because That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, the guy who signed us, he liked the music that we were producing and probably wanted to be part of it if there were a record deal that was going to come out of it. And they would try to place our songs and different things. I remember we were in a, um, a movie called Bikini Island. They got one of our songs in that. Uh, so, you know, I think it was probably a potential stepping stone to something else uh, that never mm -hmm. quite uh, materialized. Um, gotcha. So it'd be for getting your music into, I guess, like film and TV stuff mostly? Yeah, I think so. Gotcha. Was that like a, a thing that you ever wanted to do, like film scoring or, or writing to picture or or making music just for, for visuals? Um, not necessarily at that point. Um, I was really into the performing part of it and uh, didn't really think, didn't really know that I could do that other kind of stuff. Um, and that didn't really occur to me until, you know, we moved back to Chicago and then I got a job at uh, Jellyvision, which was the former name of Jackbox. And um, I saw that we were farming our music out to other people to do. And we did that for years where just uh, this one guy in Chicago would do all the music and then we farmed it out to a guy in LA. And after a while I was starting to get into rec home recording and I was like, well, I wonder if I could ever do something like that. You know, how hard would that be? And so it kind of pulled the curtain back at that stage. I was like, oh, people do this kind of stuff. And it's, I, I understand that. I could probably figure that out. And that's when I first started thinking about um, doing it myself. Yeah. So what were those early days like in terms of, uh, I mean, so you started in, uh, it was editing first, right? Uh, I started out as a writer. There was a project before You Don't Know Jack, which was our first kind of game title uh, called That's a Fact Jack, which was an educational uh, product, kind of had a little video QuickTime host on it. And you talk about young adult literature and uh, we would write questions about these books, like, you know, A Wrinkle in Time or something like that. You know, I'd write a bunch of questions and then it would be this quiz, quiz show. So um, that turned into You Don't Know Jack, where we partnered with Berkeley Systems out in uh, Berkeley, California. And uh, so we were just cranking out a bunch of questions, trivia questions. And uh, so that's kind of my entree into that. And then I became an, an editor for those games and I hosted a couple of games. I hosted probably the worst selling You Don't Know Jack spinoff, which was You Don't Know Jack Sports. Um, couldn't quite find our market for that one. And I hosted a, our teen version called Head Rush and I, I co-directed that one too. So I kind of got to experience all the different parts of, of game making from writing to editing to hosting, VO, that kind of stuff, doing some sound effects. Um, and that's kind of mostly what I was doing up until the, the late 90s when we first started Brian Chard, who's the other audio person with me, he and I started to chip away at some of the music. And I think the first one was uh, The Ride. You don't know Jack, The Ride. 
which was in like 98 or something. So we just took a couple of the parts of the game and did music for that. And it worked and no one kind of hated it. So we're like, maybe we should do more in the next one. And we did more in the next one. And then, then the company kind of crashed. It was like around 2000, there was, we had just kind of milked Udonor Jack for uh, as much as we could. And there wasn't really, the CD-ROM market kind of went bust and pretty much the entire company was laid off except for like three or four of us. So those were some lean years and we uh, did a lot of weird projects. We, um, one project we did was we worked with uh, BMW. They gave us a, an early Mini Cooper, like before it was released in the US and um, it had this computer on it and they wanted us to do all kinds of like interactive audio with it. So like a little voice of the guy in the engine telling you how, how efficiently you're driving or um, I did this interactive music. This was when I was learning how to kind of multi-track. I was working in um, Deck 2 was the DAW I was using. I don't know if you, was, I think it was a precursor to Pro Tools. Yeah, I don't know. It. Um, it was very rudimentary, I think. But I was doing this kind of interactive music where the faster you'd go, it would start adding in more tracks. And then if you turned right, everything would kind of sweep over to the right speaker. And if you turned left, it would do it the other way. So it, as you got faster, once you hit like 60, the whole song would kick in. And it was pretty cool. Um, so we had a lot of weird projects like that for a while uh, until we rebooted the, the, uh, the games group again. And I, don't, I can't even tell you what year that was. But we just started doing another version of You Don't Know Jack. We did like a, an online version, um, Facebook version, and uh, slowly kind of rebuilt the the games group back. And at that point I was doing mostly, I was kind of weaning myself off of writing and getting more into sound and sound effects and uh, music. Do you find the sound effects and uh, music are the most fun parts of the job? Definitely at this point. Um, it's, you know, I, I think I get bored kind of easily and I put in the years writing and uh, especially when you're writing for, you don't know, Jack, it is like such a chore, you know, you just kind of, plowing through all this, these books and looking online. We didn't, even, when I was writing, we didn't have the internet. So it was like all just stacks of books that you're going through. And, um, it kind of burns you out after a while. You're like, I can't write another dis or dad question. You know, I, I, can't, I don't have it in me. So, uh, the audio stuff was great because, uh, there was so much, it was wide open. There was so much to learn. I could learn about if I just focused on sound effects, there was just a whole world there. And then adding in the music part, uh, just learning how to play other instruments and, um, you know, learning about different kinds of plugins and effects and all the things you can do. I'm still, you know, I barely scratch the surface with all that, but I'm every day I, I learn something new. So it's, it's a blast. It's really, for me, it's, it's perfect. Yeah. That's really great to hear. So to go back a little bit. So when you're using a uh, deck two or just like working, you know, just making music or, or sound too. Uh, I imagine that it wasn't so easily accessible to like get all this stuff, right? In terms of like having, I don't know if it was like a home studio or if you actually had like a studio over there. Uh, I had something in the office at that point. Um, yeah, it was, it was just, uh, I had like a, I wasn't recording anything live, you know? So I had a mm -hmm. K2000 keyboard and that's where I got most of my, my sounds. Uh, Brian would play the guitar, the bass, and I would, you know, 
play drums on the keyboard and um, kind of piece together things that way. But it was, yeah, it was really kind of a pretty spare setup. And um, yeah, I don't know. We were just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. And I mean, sound effects were a little easier. We were building up a sound effects database. And with You Don't Know Jack, we relied a lot on like the um, Warner Brothers and uh, Hanna-Barbera sound effects. So mm. we'd kind of take those as a starting point and build on those. And, um, so that was a little more intuitive. But I think the music thing was like, I don't know. How do you do this? I don't, I don't know. Let's try that. What does that button do? And for me, it's still kind of like that. I'm still learning. I have a pretty basic setup here, but um, compared to then, it's I've come a little bit, little way. Right. <laughs> Out of curiosity, did you uh, ever like study music theory or have any interest in? I've had plenty of interest in it, and I've tried to study it over the years and probably absorbed a little bit of it. But it's uh, it's funny every time. September comes around, which is, you know, our, our development schedules from like January through August. And then I have this period from September to end of November where we're not, you know, just really working on the games. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to finally learn how to, you know, I'm going to learn that circle of fifths this time or something. Uh, so I, I try, um, but I do, I think when you get past a certain age, it doesn't sink in as much anymore. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm constantly watching YouTube videos. Um, I have, you know, people like Rick Beato teaching me things all the time when I'm watching videos and bookmarking things and saying, okay, I have to remember that. So, yeah. Well, I ask, cause I feel like when I listen to your music, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way, but it, it sounds like, like you don't think about those things at all, but you really do an amazing job of like keeping everything fresh. And oh, yeah, that, I mean, that's, I'll take that as a compliment, definitely, because, yeah, I kind of feel I have this outsidery attitude a little bit where it's like, I don't need theory, you know, but there is a lot of like, I'm stuck at a chord and I'm like, okay, where can I go from here? Uh, I should know. And they'll just play stuff and say, oh, that sounds good. So mm-hmm. I, I work by ear a lot and it's, it's really what sounds right to me and what, what doesn't sound right. So, yeah, that's, it's kind of like outsider art a little bit. Yeah. Well, I feel like that approach also gives you some other opportunities too to discover something new because I feel like with theory, it's kind of like grammar where if like you know the rules, then you know how to get yourself out of a, a potential issue. But if you don't, then sometimes you might, you know, go to the wrong, wrong place and it might work out great and totally. be something exciting. Totally. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I'm constantly, like I said, I'm constantly watching videos and trying to get new ideas and, and, um, but I think the good thing about that is that I'm not coming from the same place everybody else is. So I, I listen to a lot of video games and a lot of the music is, is very similar. You know, it's like, oh, it's a quest game and it all has that kind of 16th drum thing going on. And then the, the, you know, action strings doing the same thing. It's like, it, it works. For, for those kinds of games. But if I were to do that, I would probably come at, at it from a different place because I don't really have that that uh, orchestration background. So I would say, well, and plus a lot of our games are, I'm trying to inject a little bit of humor in them too. And it's just kind of, uh, I don't know, whimsy or levity. And so I don't get too serious with a lot of what I'm doing. 
Uh, and so I like the music itself to have a little bit of a, a lightness or a, a sense of humor or just not taking itself too seriously. I mean, one of my favorites uh, is the trivia murder, uh, or sorry, trivia. Trivia murder, murder party. Er, everyone murder has trouble with right, that. Yeah. <laughs> There's about 900 names that people call that game. Murder <laughs> trivia game. For sure. But it's funny because when you, when you mentioned comedy, that like that's probably the most serious sounding one, but it's so over the top in terms of the approach that, that it becomes funny, especially at the very end. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with that one, it's like when I was thinking of the music, I, I first I was like, okay, I'm going to go total John Carpenter with this whole thing. And it's going to be like 80s horror. And then I said, no, you know, I don't know if the whole game should be one thing. And I, I was trying to think about how, how would the killer who's hosting this game, what would his, where would he get his music from? You know, he's running this hotel. And so I said, maybe he has an old record player with old vinyl and that's his, you know, game music. And so I started just creating a bunch of like fake vinyl records. And so I'm like, what would he have? Okay. He'd probably have a bunch of kids albums, which would be kind of weird and creepy. So I did like some old kids music and then he'd have like some Herb Alpert type stuff. You know, what would his parents record collection look like? So I tried to pick as many different styles as I could. And then I ran them through like a vinyl filter and warped them a little bit and made them scratchy. So that's like most of the game. And then you get to the final round and I kind of throw that whole metaphor out the window and just do the over the top, you know, get me out of here music. You can break rules too, I guess. Do you find that, because uh, I've found just working on some TV things that like the uh, the comedy cues tend to be the hardest. And like when you're trying to do funny music, it, it, it always... I mean, it's, it's such a challenge with timing and I imagine, especially with the game, that it's even Yeah, crazier. definitely. Uh, and I, I don't even think when the music itself is funny, um, I think it's probably more effective when it's not funny and you just kind of let the game be funny and then you support it somehow. But um, I think more in like just the, you know, what's the band for this game? I kind of mm -hmm. try to not be too serious with what that is. You know, for each game, I try to figure out, okay, who's the band? and what instruments are in it. And I have to be consistent with that throughout the, throughout the game. So, I mean, it depends on the game, like something like um, Civic Doodle, which is just a ridiculous game, has really ridiculous music, uh, partly because it was coming in hot at the end of the summer and I had to do it quickly. So I'm like, what instrument can I play really easily? It's like, oh, kazoo, that's my lead instrument. Like, so kazoo and slide whistle and that uh, was really easily playable. Um, so that was more like an expediency thing, but I don't know, just depending on the game, uh, like this game fake in it, uh, has this kind of retro cartoon style. So that kind of led to, oh, maybe I'll do like, a you know, um, ventures meets fifties beach party movie thing with it. And so it's, it's has a certain connotation, that kind of music. It's, there's a lightness to it and it supports the cartoon style. So it really depends on the game, but um, I don't try to go too wacky with stuff, but it is, it's a challenge, you know, you don't want to have too much attention drawn to the music. You want to still be a supporting player. So it's finding that balance. Yeah. And for our listeners, like how, how much time do you have to do the sound and score each game? It, dep it depends. Um, you know, we usually start in, around January, um, we've got five games and in the 
for the first two party packs, I did all five games, which was just ridiculous. Um, so whatever, seven months divided by five games, that's how long I had. Uh, so now between Brian and I, he does two games. So he does the music and sound effects for two of the games. I do the music and sound effects for, I was doing it for three of the games. Uh, now we have a, a new guy, is amazing audio guy, Avery Makel, who is now doing lead audio on, he did one of the games last year and he'll probably do two this year. So, and we're actually hiring too. So I'm looking to get someone to take over some more music and, and audio stuff. So to answer your question, depending on the game, like if it's a big sequel, like Trivia Murder Party, that'll last pretty much from January to August. But the music really won't start coming in until I start seeing animation and all that. And that'll take a couple months usually. So on average, we have, I'd say, two to three months per game for music, sound effects, and implementation in FMOD. So... Um, and it's a lot of overlapping too. So uh, mm. one game will start and then the next one will start after like a month into that game and then the next one will start. So they, they definitely overlap. Right. Very cool. Well, I want to ask uh, as an aspiring game composer, because that's uh, one area of scoring that I haven't gotten into, um, for any general tips you have for, for the art of writing music for video games. Oh, wow. Um, general tips. Well, pre-production is key. At least for, you know, and, and this is all, the caveat is that Jackbox isn't your normal game studio, I don't think. So take all this with a, a grain of salt. But um, we don't get a lot of pre-production on our games. We usually like kind of have two weeks and then you, you dive right into production. But I think establishing that kind of sound palette and your band and all that ahead of time is really important because once you're in it, there's really not a lot of time to kind of change things around. So I use that two weeks to like listen to as much music as I can, look at as many like stills from the artist or, you know, storyboards and really kind of die, just kind of stew in it for a while and see what, what bubbles up. So I can kind of get a really clear picture of where I want to go. Cause once it gets going, I, I just, I don't have the luxury of kind of like sitting around and trying to figure stuff out. So kind of hitting the ground running. Um, if possible. And I don't know, just really understanding the personality of the game, at least for, for our games, each game has its own personality and that, which really informs not only the music, but the, the kind of sound palette, the sound effects, you know, what kind of sound effects you want to use and ambience and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if it's a, a, a funnier game, you, do you want to go like more cartoony with the sound effects? Or if it's like a really tactile game, do you want to have you know, create your own stuff and just kind of bang a lot of pots and pans around. And so just kind of figuring out what that personality is and, and trying to uh, make sure that your music and the sound is, is supporting it. I don't know. The other thing is I just don't, once I'm kind of, once it starts, I'm, I don't stop thinking about it like until it's done. So just like recording every idea I have, like when I'm walking the dog and something pops in my head, I just, pull out my phone and record it because everything is valuable. I have so many like pieces of music I have to create that I don't want to miss something or forget it by the time I get home. So just 
listening to everything you're you're coming up with and somehow recording it. Whether you, I remember with um, the closing theme for um, Dictionarium, I woke up on a Sunday morning and the whole thing was in my head, like completed, hmm. like the whole song. And I ran downstairs and like hit record and just sang the thing into my my DAW. I was like, I can't lose this. So that's real important for me. Just always somehow write, writing it down, recording it, doing something. And then I think also, you know, being in really close contact with the director and the artist and constantly checking in to make sure that what you're doing is working for them. I, I started doing these little, like almost daily check-ins with the artists, even if they're like for five minutes, just to see what they're working on. You know, cause a lot of times I'm waiting around for them to complete a whole section of the game and that's kind of wasted time. So if they could show me like just literally zoom into their, their art program and I can just watch the timeline of what they're creating, then I can start thinking about what I'm going to do, even if I can't create something at that point, because I don't know how long it needs to be or, or how it's going to change from one minute to the next. At least I can kind of start stewing on what it should sound like, you know, what, what could I do for that? And, or I'll have them record that just like record their timeline and send it to me and I'll just kind of watch it for over and over and just think about what would maybe go along with that. Right. Yeah. I imagine that that is the hardest part for what you do is creating these pretty unique sonic palettes for each game where it's like, there's not too much overlap between one to the next. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm running out of ideas too, because we're, I've been, this is party pack seven and there's five games in each pack. So it's like 35 games and I want each game to sound different. And I can only, you know, I'm not the most versatile player in the world. So I was like, Hmm, can I do more bossa nova? I don't know. Uh, that's why I listen to a lot of stuff. I mean, that, that pre-production part, I just sit on YouTube and just go down the weirdest rabbit holes and just save every video and say, put it in a different folder and say, this, this goes in here, this goes in here. And then like take, having enough time to take all that stuff and instead of just copying what you're listening to, kind of process it and say, okay, what can I com combine that with to make it my own? You know, how can I make that unique instead of just like, I'm going to do what they did take it and add something like with champed up in the new pack it's got this kind of edm meets drumline thing so i knew i wanted to do drumline because it was in a stadium but then i was like what can i mix with that that'll make it sound kind of my own and i was like starting to listen to edm stuff i was like wow that's kind of cool what if i put those that drumline behind it and it was you know so just having enough giving yourself enough time to kind of experiment and and make something your own instead of just kind of copying something that you heard. Yeah. I think it's really cool. That's amazing that like every single composer that I talk to, we just all rave about the music for Jackbox games overall oh. for all of them. So yeah. Well, <laughs> that's nice to hear, but you're doing a great job. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's a fun gig. Every, every September I'm like, Oh my God, I got to do something else. This is going to kill me. And then I'm like, I can't, this is the greatest job ever. Like, what am I talking about? So uh, it's great to have that kind of decompression time where I, by, when January hits, I'm like, okay, what do we got? What's next? Well, cool. I think uh, if it's great with you, I'm going to go on to the last segment for this podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic. You can say as much or as little as you want about it. Oh boy. Mr. Tech here. 
First one we got here is uh, DAW. Uh, I use Digital Performer, mostly because I'm really comfortable in it. You know, I, I, I learned on deck, but then I moved up to DP and it, it just makes sense to me. Every time there's an update, it'll give new appearances and I make it, I, I make it look exactly like, like the first one did about 10 years ago because I, I just like that look. But, you know, mo- pretty much everything I do except for like guitar and bass and percussion is in the box. And so it's really intuitive for me. And uh, I, I always say I'm going to learn something else in the off time, and I, I never do, but someday I will, maybe. Well, it sounds like there might not be any reason to, to learn anything new. It's more curiosity, you know? It's like when you hear everyone said, oh, I use Ableton, you know, I'm like, well, what is it about Ableton that everybody likes? Or, I, you know, I love Logic. So, someday. But I, yeah. DP, DP's great. I love it. Cool. Well, that then, uh, what about percussion? Percussion... Um, I use a lot of, uh, I use the Abbey Road kits and contact. I, I like those. I use, uh, was it Superior Drummer? Um, that was the one I used first. And that's really cool if you want to really get in the weeds with like how you mic and bleeding and all that and stuff. But usually I just kind of bounce it down. Uh, but there's some great kits in that. Like some, their vintage collection is really cool. And then there's the, that great, um, was it like the Michael Blair kit that I, I used in uh, um, Quiplash? It's got all the crazy, uh, like, weird metal rims and stuff, and it's really mm-hmm. percussive and great. So I use that. Um, I have a box of percussion over there with, like, ratchets and slide whistles and, you know, guiros and anything I can find. Uh, I use stylus. Mm which is really great to kind of layer underneath stuff to just give it a little bit of funkiness when you need, want to make something just a little thicker. I don't know beyond that. I I tend to like when there's a new project, I'll treat myself to a a little new plugin or something. So I'll look at like that stuff from, um, what is it like micro robot? Is that what it's called? I don't think I know that one, but they're a cool little company and they make some really weird little, instruments that are just odd and you can kind of just sprinkle them in there and to give you some uh just weirdness yeah we love small weird sounding things yeah yeah (laughs) totally uh last one i got here is guitar amps guitar amps um i have one guitar well i have two really i have a pig nose that i don't use (laughs) that's sitting over there and then i have this orange uh combo here but um it's most of my amping is done in the box. I use um, the native instruments uh, guitar rig. Was it? Guitar rig. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, a lot of the time, what I'm looking for is already in there, and if it's not, I can kind of tweak it a little bit and and come up with something pretty cool. But um, I did. I was listening. You know, I I've, I've been listening to your podcast like every morning. I love it. And I always have a notebook next to me because I'm right. I'm like, what did he just mention? What is that? And the other day someone mentioned uh, some guitar. Well, there was a pedal the other day. Oh, the Strymon one. I think Jeff Cardoni mentioned that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's always something I'm like, okay, I'm going to look into that because that's just, you know, anything to give me a new sound and kind of make me excited about 
new sounds and playing a guitar in a different way. I'm not a great guitarist, so, you know, the amps definitely help getting a good sound out of it. So in the last episode I filmed, there was a, a talk about, you know, like writing to the the strengths of the samples that you have and someone saying, don't do that. Like get, keep the idea in your head and then don't and use the samples to help you get it out there. But when it comes to guitar, I realized that like, I remember the moment I bought like my first boss pedal or like that overdrive. And mm-hmm. then that's what inspired like that riff for that one song. And I think of that song as like that, overdrive song oh yeah and it's funny how i don't think there's a wrong way to write music you know sometimes if if the gear does inspire it then that's great you know oh totally yeah i i mean there are a lot of times when i plug a guitar in and i'll i'll listen to some different amps an hour will go by and i'll just be playing different riffs you know coming out oh this is total easy top and i'll and so just to kind of inspire playing and then uh, that leads you to something original from that. So anything that's going to get you to, to have fun while you're doing it is great. Yeah. I guess the the one danger there is, uh, I think I remember Hans saying, which is that like, <laughs> this thing is like, you ever have that moment where you have an idea in your head, you go to the keyboard and you like hit preset next and you keep trying to play it. And then you completely forget what the idea was. <laughs> yeah, totally. I thought you were going to say you, you realized that it wasn't your idea. Oh, which, which <laughs> I do too. a lot too. It's like, you're like, this is, this is a great riff. What is this? Is this something? And you record it. And for the next couple of days, you're like, that's gotta be something. You send it to someone. Is this something? But yeah, yeah. a lot of times it isn't. Which is I love getting those uh, voice memos from my composer friends and they send some piece of music that is just so unbelievably good. And they're like, this is something. I know it. Like, yeah. I don't want to rip someone off. <laughs> it's dangerous. You know, you never really know. You kind of walk that line of like, is this an original thought or is this something I heard somewhere? And then you kind of just put it out in the world and wait to see if right. someone says, Hey, why'd you steal that riff from, I get a lot of that. Like I'll, I'll go on YouTube and watch people play in our games and they'll say, Oh, he totally ripped that off from, you know, whatever. And it's some game I've never heard of. I'm like, well, I, I didn't never heard that before, but I'll have to listen to it now. For sure. So. Cool. Well, Andy, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love to talk about this stuff and I really enjoy your podcast. So I oh, thank you. recommend it to uh, people are getting sick of me recommending it, but I've been telling everybody at work about it. So, oh, so greatly appreciated. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.